I'm here today with Elizabeth Scott, who is a historical martial arts and armoured combat practitioner on foot and on horseback, as well as being a surgeon, and we're definitely going to be talking about that. So, without further ado, Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. Um, I, it's funny because you know you emailed me about some trip to Britain and I had this I have a list of potential guests to invite and I didn't connect the Elizabeth Scott who was emailing me with the Elizabeth Scott who I wanted to get on the show <laughs> it was like, I don't know. it's okay it's a, it's a bit of a common name <laughs> <laughs> well filed separately in my head I think um, okay so whereabouts in the world are you yeah so I am technically in uh Newton Center, which is a suburb outside, uh, just west of the city of Boston. So okay. east, east Coast, kind of New England, United States. Love it. I was in Boston um, before the pandemic for a seminar with um, the, oh, I am blanking on the name of the school, which invited me over to teach a seminar for them. Uh, I don't think you came to that, did you? Did we uh, no, actually, no. I just here a year ago so uh, have you been to the to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum yes it is actually one of my favorite places I work only maybe a 10 minute walk from that museum oh my god it's so lucky. good it's gorgeous a lot of yeah. uh, medieval and renaissance uh, art and artifacts yeah just just fine. what's your favorite bit in it do you have a favorite I do. Uh, they have a very well-preserved effigy from Spain. It's mm-hmm. uh, early 16th century. Um, and it's it's just lovely the way they have it presented. And you can get very close to it. And the, the details on the armor and the, the mail are just exquisite. Okay. So there we have it. So if you go to the Isabella Suit of okay, I went there uh, on, on this trip to Boston and... You know how when you go in, it's all modern and glass and everything. And I didn't really know what to expect because I, I sort of, I'd heard about this museum I should go visit and I didn't look anything up about it because I like to sort of see these things fresh or without expectation. And so I went in and there was this modern thing where you go and there's this gallery with these Botticelli's. I was like, Oh, okay. So Isabella Stewart Gardner got the first Botticelli into America that ever went to America. That was her. Like, well done, Isabella. Good job. And, Looking at, oh, some nice Botticelli's. Oh, that's nice. In this sort of well-put-together modern thing. And then you go through this sort of tunnel. And, oh, my God. <laughs> that, that, it's like a, an Italian piazza or a courtyard in a, in a little castle or something. It's just, it's, I, I, I literally, I sat down and cried. It was so gorgeous. I love that yeah. place. It's it's breathtaking and actually one of my well I have many favorite things about that museum one of which it was created and run by a woman. Um, oh yeah. Yes, it's just that uh, you know she put in her will that she wants essentially nothing changed or taken away from the museum. So right. when you see it, when you see that courtyard with all of these flowers and pots and yeah, pieces of you know Renaissance artwork, that's what it looked like you know a hundred years ago. Yeah. kind of thing it's nothing has changed and i i think yeah. that's really cool exactly it's a collection not a museum yes. it's like the wallace collection where you go into wallace's house in london and there are these fabulous like rooms full of arms and armor and rooms full of astonishing furniture and astonishing paintings and everything. the whole place is just gorgeous and it's but it's his collection yes. and like the stibbert in florence have you been there 
I have been, but not in, in more than 10 years. It was a long time ago. Right. It, I mean, the Stibbert collection in Florence is like that as well. It's like somebody's house that they have their collection there and you go there and it's, it's the way they set it up. So you know, in most modern museums, they, they're moving stuff around and they're changing things and they're putting on displays and this, that, the other. But this is, it pretty much stays the same. And it's, yeah, it's, it just feels better. Yes, I, I highly recommend if you ever come to Boston, you know, go. Um, and particularly on uh, Thursdays, they'll actually have um, music. That you can come and listen to a live concert and just That's sit, right. you know, in in um, kind of the open area and, and, you know, look at this beautiful medieval and Renaissance uh, architecture and, you know, hear live, uh, live instrumental music. Great. Yeah, I, there was actually I was there on a Friday, and there was there was music on that Friday as well. So I got lucky that way. I was supposed to be there on a Thursday, but I screwed up my Esther and wasn't allowed into America. <laughs> I couldn't get on the flight, so I had to take the flight the next day. So I was a day late, but I still got to the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum, and it was yeah, totally, totally worth it. So, um, so what took you to Boston? Uh, essentially, work. So. Um, as you mentioned in my intro, I, I am a surgeon, uh, okay. which a lot of academic training, uh, right. multiple pieces. Why one so, would hope. <laughs> yes, yes, one would hope. Uh, and the final piece of my training was a um, fellowship in uh, sports medicine surgery at Boston Children's oh, wow. Hospital. Yeah, so um, uh, that's essentially why I moved. Um, okay. And it you know, just so happens that there happens to be great... Uh, HEMA and interest in uh, medieval and Renaissance swordsmanship here. So double, okay, so double benefit. Absolutely. So what, what kind of surgeon are you? So you're a specialist in sports injuries and children? Uh, essentially, yeah. So, you know, um, the delineation of, of different types of orthopedic surgery is a little bit different in the U.S. compared to um, some of the European countries. So I, I, I don't I think am, anyone listening has any right. idea of what these things delineations <laughs> are. So I wouldn't worry. That's not what we're going to yes. get confused about. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I do, I do orthopedic surgery. So, you know, broken bones, um, trauma, and then more specifically sports medicine, which means things like, uh, rotator cuff injuries, ACL tears. Right. Um, yes. And my, my training was specifically with, sort of adolescents and young people, but I, I do take care of adults uh, and children alike. I'd imagine if kids are growing and their joints are changing quite rapidly because they're growing, that will present challenges that you don't have in grown-ups. Exactly. So some of it is recognizing the unique um, injury patterns that, that kids or teenagers can have. And then some of it is also learning um, specialized techniques um, so when their growth plates are still open in their bones, uh, it means that there's certain techniques that you could do in an adult to say um, reconstruct an AC, a torn ACL in the knee. That in a child you you can't use that technique; it would cause a growth disturbance. Um, ah, so that's okay. yes. Yeah. So then there's very sort of highly specialized surgeries that are done in in um, uh, children and adolescents. Yeah. Okay. So what what drew you to that branch of medicine? Uh, you know, I think if you talk to a lot of uh, orthopedic surgeons, you'll find that um, we've all been injured somewhere along the way. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, you, you, run, you meet your uh, neighborhood friendly orthopedic surgeon who, you know, fixes your, your knee or your shoulder. And um, you say, you know, that, that guy's really cool. I, 
I want to do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, but I, a- I do I do like the hands-on aspect. So I get to work with power tools with drills and awls no. and hammers and all. Yeah, you're my, cringing. <laughs> my, 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 okay. I, I am pretty sort of robust. I've, I've attended an aut- – I'm not a doctor or, or medical doctor of any kind. Um, but, you know, I've attended an autopsy and I've seen like a human body cut in the bits and, you know, examined mm-hmm. and whatnot out of – because I was doing biology A level, and I have a sort of interest in physiology and that kind of that, that kind of stuff, but not a doctor. Um, but you know, and I, I'm not particularly squeamish. You know, I can I can butcher an animal or whatever, and it's fine, right? But my younger daughter is currently obsessed with Grey's Anatomy. You know that medical show from back when, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Maybe she turned out to be a surgeon. I think I think she'd actually be a pretty good surgeon, um, but. Um, Whenever they do the kind of the medical stuff on TV, I'm like, I don't want to see that. That's just, why are you showing me this? I, I want to, I want the people talking and having dramatic stuff, but I don't actually need to see the knife kind of slicing open the body and the blood coming out. And then they stick their hands in and they fiddle about with organs. It's like, <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd be happy to, to be there in the room when somebody was doing that and actually watching, but it doesn't, I just don't like it on TV. Well, be fair, on TV, they love to dramatize it, right? There's the dramatic music and it's, you know, this crazy moment. And I don't know, in real life, it's just, it's just work. It's what you're doing. So, I mean. (laughs) Yeah. And and I'm guessing that, 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 um, like in, in your hospital, the doctors aren't all shagging each other and constantly talking about who's shagging who while they're operating on someone. Uh, Typically not. Most of us will say that um, Scrubs, if you've ever seen that that uh, comedy mm-hmm. show, that that, that yeah. was a more accurate representation <laughs> of uh, what training's like. <laughs> okay. Um, and, and I also get the impression from, from TV that all surgeons are massively sleep deprived. Uh, that that's, worries me. Yeah, that's... Uh, there's there's definitely some room to improve improve uh, our sleep hygiene for sure. Because <laughs> you know if if, some, if someone's chopping me open, I want them well rested, unstressed, unworried. You know, not desperately wondering whether that girl's going to call them back or that boy's going to show up on the date that they're supposed to have in like two hours time or whatever. And I, I just want them to just be having a really relaxed and focused day at work. I don't want any of that drama. Right. <laughs> I, I agree. And I mean, I think that is part of our training is we learn to, um, you know, kind of hyper focus in the moment. And, you know, when you when you are in the, the operating theater, I mean, that is that is all that is there. That is all that you're thinking about. And you have well, to kind of compartmentalize, you know, the rest of your life. So, yeah, um, I, I get that when fencing, obviously, someone's swinging a sword at my head, it focuses the mind considerably yes and i'm also i'm learning to fly planes at the moment and when you're in the air i'm flying an airplane and there isn't anything else right it's like looking out the window making sure you're not going to crash into anything or fly into a cloud or you know are you getting lost or you know the navigation while flying and you know as you're it's it's like it's a hundred percent full focus and the fact that you know my bank just screwed up and money disappeared out of my account when it shouldn't or whatever, which did actually happen a couple of weeks ago. In the air, disappears. Everything yes. just goes away. Yes. I you know, I would I would argue that that's actually one of one of several similarities between um swordsmanship and surgery is that 
and aviation is that is that need to um, to be in the moment to have sort of the state of flow, you know, right. where where all that is there is what's in front of you, your breathing, your opponent, your spacing, your timing. You know, you have to let everything else go, or you're not going to be an effective fighter. Yeah, or or you're going to cut the wrong bit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I did actually once wrestle with a guy. Uh, he had a, a student came to one of my seminars who was blind in both eyes. And the reason he was blind in both eyes is because he was having trouble with one eye and he went into surgery and the surgeon operated on the wrong eye. Yeah. Yeah. Mistakes happen. I mean, surgeons are people and da, da, da. But it's like, you have to wonder what, what could have been done in right. what sleep hygiene. I mean, if, if the, if the bloke was in a hurry or sleep deprived or stressed out about something, He's more likely to make that kind of mistake. Yes. And, you know, that's why, you know, it sh- that should be a never event, right? That's yeah, something that should never, ever happen. And, and, you know, aviation and, again, and surgery are very similar in that regard, that the way we structure safety, you know, that there's not just one check for something, yeah. say, do we have the right patient? But, you know, that's checked multiple times prior yeah. to the important event occurring, you know, that, 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 you know, any sort of lapse of safety is, is quickly addressed and then, you know, new systems are put in place to sort of yeah, prevent sure. that from ever happening ever again. And mistakes will happen. I mean, it's in any human endeavor. It's, it's you know, yes. like with aviation, it's very, very safe, but people do die. Um, exactly. Have you read Atul Gawande's book, um, The Checklist Manifesto? Yes, I, I am a huge fan of that book. I, you know, I just totally loved it. Uh, for the sake of the listeners who probably haven't read it, do you want to like just summarize what it's about? Sure. So um, it's it's kind of about exactly actually what we're talking about that that in order to um, prevent mistakes, that no matter how smart you are, no matter how you know good you are at something, um, that there there has to be this sort of checklist that you go through every time you do the event, um, right. and that that. Again, it's it's not about you know being the best surgeon. It's it's about being the safest surgeon, and sort of how that then applies to not just surgery, but those those same ideas apply to you know again multiple fields, multiple things that you want to do in your life. Um, yeah, I think cause it started out with this chap in the UK whose wife died during a surgical procedure when she shouldn't have, mm-hmm. and he was a pilot. And he was, when he asked about, you know, so what, what processes are in place? And he was appalled by the lack of processes. And yes. so he's, he sort of inspired a bunch of doctors to use aviation checklist practice in surgery and thus saved a bunch of lives. Is that, yeah. is that fair? Yeah. It's, it's, we try to avoid, you know, what we call the Swiss cheese model where, you know, every piece of Swiss cheese has a hole in it, right? And if you take a whole <laughs> bunch of pieces lined up together, and you look at it, hold it up to the light, hopefully you don't see a hole because the holes right. are all in different places. Yeah. But again, the idea is occasionally mistakes do happen because at every stage, every piece of the checklist, something goes slightly wrong. Yeah. Um, but again, it should, you know, that's something that, that there's millions, billions of dollars that go into both the aviation and um, healthcare fields to try to prevent these problems. Yeah, and even in my case, because of the way my brain works, checklists 
because you know when learning to fly you know you're sitting there and you do your power checks and you go through the checklist and carpet does this and mixture is that and so on and there's everything is listed even with all of that in place um, I have actually taken off without without my one stage of flaps I'm supposed to have because my brain just skipped over it in the list and even though I've taken off I don't know dozens of times it still just wasn't there in my head well, I think uh, that's why I would never be brave enough to fly a plane. <laughs> At least not brave enough to fly a plane with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, 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 it's super fun. Um, and very safe, very safe. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so how do, like, okay, you do the historical martial arts stuff and the surgical stuff. I imagine the surgical stuff takes up a lot more of your time than the swords. Um, but how does the training like compare. I'm always interested in pedagogical models and how we can learn skills, particularly dangerous skills. And so yeah. it's definitely a dangerous skill. So Right. Yeah. So so, you know, essentially both sword fighting, if we're talking specifically about, you know, what we're trying to emulate, not necessarily like sport HEMA. Um, obviously it's something with little room for failure, right? I mean the, right. the win condition is you live and the lose condition is you die. Right. Um so there, there is that need to, to develop a certain level of excellence without ever, you know, actually putting yourself in the situation, ideally, where you risk your life until right. you have to. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, obviously on some level with both, there's a lot of ways we make both safer, right? So the beginner shows up to your class and you might be putting a polypropylene weapon in their hand before you... I, 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 I used to from the get-go. I used to. I, I approve of that, but you know, <laughs> a lot of groups out there will start with something else, and then even still, your you know steel fetter looks very very different uh, than you know a sharpest. So yeah, there's but I get my students sharps right? as well. Yeah, not the beginners, but I do I do get them onto sharps because <laughs> it's different. Yes, yeah. no, I agree, and uh, you know our our group here in Boston, uh, we like to do cu- you know cutting events regularly, and mm-hmm. you know I think that that's that's important, uh, whether or not that's really something that you want to you know become an expert at. You have you have to know how how your sword actually works, uh, even if your sure. goals are really just you know fencing with friends. Um, but. Uh, no, as, as we're talking about, you know, how do you, how do you develop skills and something like that? So, um, you know, I think there's, there's kind of, uh, multiple things you have to think about. So again, in surgery, we, we find ways to make it safer. So you're operating, you know, on a cadaver or, um, you're seeing someone do something first and taking all the notes you can on that before you're ever actually asked to do it yourself. Um, so that by I the time you you're do doing it, under it, supervision, yes, somebody super, of course. like, like, well, like flying a plane, you have a, I mean, my instructor was sat next to me when I took off without flaps. And then we had a little discussion about how flaps would actually would have helped because it was yeah. actually, it's not dangerous to do that. It's just, it yes. takes a bit longer to get off. There was plenty of runway and it wasn't, it wasn't a dangerous mistake. So he let me make it. But if it had been a dangerous mistake, let's say I'd skipped over the power checks altogether and started trundling towards the, the runway, he would have said, ah, stop a sec. And, what about your power checks? <laughs> right. <laughs> so like the job of the instructor is to give you as much room to fail as possible so long as failure is safe, but to prevent any dangerous failure from occurring during training. So exactly. I think it's true in swords, true in aviation, and I'm guessing true in surgery. Yeah. So, you know, as, as you're learning uh, 
we like to say that some of the very best uh, teachers who are surgeons, when they're teaching a um, resident physician, um, they're almost operating through them. So right. it's, you know, they're holding up tissue or something. They say, okay, cut here and you do it. And really they're controlling where you cut and when you do it and how far you go. Um, but you feel like you're in control as the learner because you have the knife, right? Right. Um, but it's still very controlled and they, you know, they will stop you immediately if, if what you're doing is not in line with, with how they think the procedure should go. Um, right. Yeah. And that's, that's similar to how I teach teachers actually. So when I have students who are learning how to teach, I will say, you know, the class is doing the thing that they're doing. And I'll say, okay, so what, what do you think they should be doing next? And they'll say, you know, something. And if it's a reasonable thing, I'll say, okay, fine, move them on to that. Let's see what happens. And, but if they, if they were about to do something that wouldn't have, I don't know, not made sense for the class or was maybe two jumps too far ahead and they needed mm-hmm. to have some space in between, be like, oh, have you considered this? And it's, it's much less stressful than obviously flying or surgery because, you know, we can take all the time to chat through it and stuff. And the students are just happily doing the previous drill and it's, no stress, but the idea is that the student does the thing and the instructor just sort of, well, kind of like when, when toddlers are learning to walk, <laughs> the parents are there to make sure that they, if when they fall over, they fall over in a safe place. Right. And it's, yeah, it's, it's similar in surgery as you start to progress in your training and you have more independence, um, you know, your, uh, sort of chief surgeon who's watching you is, is sometimes letting you be a little bit inefficient as long as you're doing the thing correctly. You know, you're not yeah. risking the patient, but maybe your technique is, is slow or, you know, you could be using a different instrument or something to do the same thing much faster. And they'll kind of let you do it. Right. And then, you know, if you get to a point where you're sort of stuck and you're struggling, they'll say, well, actually, have you thought of this? And then, oh, right. yes. You know, why didn't you tell me that five minutes ago? <laughs> Yeah, well, because now you remember it. Exactly. You, you've got, you you've got to let things. the student. Yeah, you've got to let the student make mistakes. But I hope it's not me on the table when there's something being taught. <laughs> it's like no, no, no. Well, I just want, I just want the chief surgeon on me and right. nobody else. Well, it is. You know, it's uh, it's actually a, a sort of well-known thing that, um, you know, if you do have help from your train for your trainees, you're you're likely to actually be much faster and better at the surgery. You know, probably what's okay. the most dangerous if you say, oh, no, I, w- I just want, you know, you, chief surgeon, to operate on me. I don't want any helpers. I don't want any. Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. You, I, would, you know? I wouldn't say that. I, just, I want. It's a bad but, idea. Yeah, okay. But I want, I want just, just, just yeah. the steadiest pair of hands on the knife. It's like, For sure. No. <laughs> but then, but then, you know, if every patient was like that, surgeons couldn't be trained. Exactly. Yes. So we, we really do rely on, on people to to trust the system. Right. And, yeah. um, that to know that, that there may be people there. Yeah. That are operating on you with less experience, but, um, it's the job of whoever is the chief in the room to make sure that it's done still safely and, and correctly. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Within the parameters. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I've only ever had one surgery and I don't ever want to do that again. <laughs> I don't, I don't blame you. I think we all want to avoid uh, being under the knife if we can. <laughs> yeah. So you, so you got into this because you had an injury. Uh, I had, yeah, I had a few injuries growing up. Um, I was a competitive dancer for a long time. Ah, that's dangerous. Uh, yes. That's more dangerous it, than it is. by a mile. For sure. 
I have had definitely more injuries from uh, my dance career than uh, swords ever. <laughs> okay. Uh, anything, anything specific that's kind of got in the way of your swords or was uh, it all successfully well, fixed? Uh, thankfully all successfully fixed. I did have, uh, issues with both of my hips actually in, in kind of college and, uh, graduate school. I had, uh, labral tears and something called impingement, uh, in both my hips and partially from dance, oh. partially from swords. Um, and I actually had to have multiple surgeries, uh, to have oh. it addressed. Yes. So oh. that, that did take me out from, from swords for um, about three years actually. Oh, yeah, that's that's not good. Yeah, because I How dealt did with you one stay side sane and... in that time. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, good question. I did a lot of reading, so I okay. started reading more about swords. Okay. Um, and armor. Um, you know, brushed up on my Latin. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, just just for the listeners who who don't know what a label tear is, what is a label tear? Yeah. So your labrum, you have one actually in your shoulder and your hip. Um, it's kind of like the gasket ring that's around the socket. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's, it's soft. It's made of a, you know, sort of cartilage, um, that can tear easily, much like the meniscus in your knee. Mm -hmm. Um, and so sports that have a lot of sort of hip flexion, things like hockey, um, martial arts, uh, dance, um, all of those over time, particularly in your kind of teenage, young adult years, um, can cause wear and tear to the labrum to where it tears and then starts to affect the cartilage next to it. Um, so people will feel pinching, burning kind of in like the front of their hip, um, you know, with deep squats, uh, with, you know, kicks and dance or lunges and, and uh, okay, fencing. So, yeah. so it hurts when that side of the joint is compressed, not stretched. Exactly. Exactly. Ah, yeah. okay. That, that's interesting because, you know, normally if you're in a, in a stretch, the sort of discomfort is on the outside of the stretch. Yeah. This is more like it's a, like a pinch you feel as everything gets sort of squished in the front of the hip. Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, and you can just go in there and stitch it up and hopefully essentially, yeah, you stitch it up and then you, uh, actually shave away the bone that has Ugh. been pressing in front of the hip. Yeah. <laughs> My so, favorite so you, procedure. You, so, so you must be something of a sculptor then. Yes. Yeah, totally. Uh, a little bit of a hip artist, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So obviously from, from what you just said, you were into historical martial arts before you went to college so how did how did that all kick off you know i i've, I've been thinking about this knowing i'd get asked this I, I am really one of those people that has just sort of always been interested in it sure. um i remember you know from a, a very young age kind of, you know i learned to read i had uh, an older brother who was very much into science fiction and uh fantasy books and i do remember that one of the first sort of real novels he he gave me or lended me um was the this book called Dealing with Dragons from, okay. from like the early 90s. And, uh, you know, the main character in it is this sort of like renegade runaway princess who learns to sword fight and, you know, <laughs> learns all these things she's not supposed to. Perfect. Yes, yes. Yeah. And she's the heroine. And I remember reading that and being like, well, that's that's what I want to do, you know? <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> and, okay. uh, yeah. And so then from there, um, 
you know, I, I was also interested in horses growing up and uh, I learned to ride and that was kind of like my, my sport, so to speak. My parents weren't really into fencing. Um, but uh, basically around the time that I finally learned to drive uh, and had access then to uh, a car, I found my way to uh, some local sort of reenactment events and um, yeah, quickly got, got my hands on uh, Sorbs. Excellent. Um, whereabouts did you start training? So that time I was actually living in, uh, in Florida, so kind of southeast mm-hmm. corner of the United States. Um, I was kind of close to Fort Lauderdale and I got into a couple groups there, some SCA stuff and then sort of an offshoot kind of independent group that um, did rapier and um, some longsword and kind of a variety of things. So, yeah. I, I think of you as an armored combat person. Is that fair or do you do you rapier as well? I, I, I don't like rapier, but it's <gasps> the only sword available. Wash your mouth out. <laughs> Rapiers are glorious. Why don't you like rapier? I just, for me, I've always had dreams of, of the knight in shining armor, you know, right, on yeah, the horse. Fair. And the rapier just doesn't fit with that. <laughs> yeah, no, fair. It, it's, it's, I think a lot of it is to do with the archetypes we are sort of reaching towards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like the archetype I reached for primarily is Jedi. Right. Same. It just mm-hmm. is. Cause when I was a kid, I sort of imprinted on Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi. And it's, yeah. So I would take unarmored longsword over like knightly combat if, if it was really an option. Cause yeah. it's closer to the Jedi thing. Right. And I like all the kind of breathing exercises and meditation and stuff. Cause it kind of feels more Jedi ish. Yeah, right. yeah, a little bit of that uh, Eastern vibe. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, yeah, if 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 you imprinted on D'Artagnan, you might have ended up more of a rapier person. But if you yes. imprinted on Knights in Shining Armor, then I can see how the rapier just wouldn't quite do it for you. Yeah, and I mean to be fair, at, at this point, I'm. I mean, I'm only 31, but I've done I've done a pretty big variety of stuff. So sure. you know, I've I've moved. Oh God, like five times, I guess, uh, in the course of, of training and everything. And, you know, I've done everything from Tai Chi and Iaido, Kenjutsu, Aikido to, you know, stage combat, um, uh, obviously harness Fecton now and, and, you know, formal HEMA affiliated groups and, um, yeah, I've been kind of all over the map, but if I have to pick a favorite, it's, it's definitely armored combat. Okay. And so, I mean, that's what I think of you and your armor looks fabulous. So first question, where did you get it? <laughs> that is beautiful armor. Thank you. It's it, Well, it's actually a mishmash of about four different armorers, um, okay. all, almost all of which are Ukrainian. Um, right. So it's, it's a little bit sad right now that if, if someone said, oh, well, I want the exact armor you had uh, – you know, a lot of those armors are unfortunately not not in production right now, right? They're sure. they're doing other things, and and hopefully they will be back up and running. But we don't know when. Um, so did you get it like mail order? So you didn't show up and actually get measured? And, wow, and it fits. yeah, I I yeah, I had kind of a you know a specific budget to start out, and so right. I you know I've I've spent enough time looking at effigies and armor and things to sort of know like what 
what I wanted the aesthetic to be, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of was able to put it together, even though they are all, again, almost all the pieces are from different armors to have kind of a cohesive look of a specific time period. And, um, you know, I have some goals. I have, uh, you know, I'm saving up, hopefully, to get, you know, a nice custom custom kit from uh from another armor but um i do like what i have and i I appreciate uh the yeah the compliment (laughs) uh you know because armor is really tricky like yes if it fits perfectly it works beautifully but if he if it's even just a little bit wrong it's horrible yes uh absolutely so i think you know no matter what whether you're getting armor from you know, a, a top tier armor or some guy you found on eBay. Um, you know, I think the key is, is either if you can't modify it yourself, knowing someone who can, even if they're not an armorer and they just do some metalworking, someone who can make some changes, you know, replace uh, rivets or move things around strapping so that you can get it right. Because, I mean, it really is a constant uh, progression. No one's ever done with their kit. There's always something no. <laughs> that they want to change that they don't like. It, 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 I think it's a bit like, um, you know, I have friends who own classic cars and they are always tinkering with those classic cars because you can't just leave them and drive them like you can a modern car. You always have to like fiddle with this and tune this and adjust that. And yeah, and, exactly. and armor, is, armor is the same. So um, presumably your armor fits well enough that you can do everything you want to do in it even with hips that perhaps need a bit more care than others? Yes. Yeah. So I've, uh, I was also, again, selective about some of the way I wanted things to fit and um, mm-hmm. the time period I was looking for. So, you know, I have ridden in, in the armor. Um, I've, I've uh, you know, gone for a run in the armor. I've done a number of things to sort of test, test it out. And, you know, I can get, I can squat all, all the way to the ground and, uh, you know, climb a ladder and all these things. Uh, but again, there's still stuff I don't like about it. You know, I don't like the curve of the kneecap and the way it, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's a thousand and one things I still, I still want to change. It's just always a matter of, of time and energy and, you know, yeah. actually so, getting around so you, doing it. <laughs> so you all live from Ukraine in, in bits. So like, mm-hmm. you know, cuirass here and arms there and legs there. And then yep. you had it modified somewhat when it arrived or? A little come? bit. Yeah. I, you know, the, the arms and legs were fit to my measurements. So mm-hmm. that, that to me was the most important thing. Um, yeah. cause I think being a, you know, being a, a female, um, my proportions are just a little bit different. And so I can't just get something completely off the rack and have it like fit me. Well, I, I know you're okay. <laughs> I'm currently trying to find a flying suit that works because my current struggle in, in flying is cockpit organization when navigating while flying and, a flying suit has all the necessary pockets and whiteboards attached to your legs and everything. So it's just, I mean, it's perfect. But the problem is, um, even if it is like six inches too long in the leg, it's still too short in the back and I can't get it on and off. So they don't make one that is, has a long enough back and legs that are sufficiently short enough that I could actually adjust them to the right length. Because of course they have pockets on the ankles as well. Which just makes like right? So, so for me, anything like that, because my legs are so much shorter than the length of my back would suggest, buying stuff off the peg is just yeah. disaster. Um, yeah, I, I know a couple of people that you know happen to fit the sort of 
generic man size that a lot of armor gets made to, but I think most that's few and far between, right? So most of us have to, you know, do the struggle of either having things that don't fit well and taking the time to try to refit them or, you know, I think most people who really get into armored combat at some point you start to save up and you say, all right, it's time that I get, you know, a, yeah. a kit that's exactly what I want. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I did. Um, and again, I can, I can justify it as a business expense. Totally. It's <laughs> great. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I am surprised that a surgeon would do armored combat. Um, given the, you know, I mean, I've had you fingers know. broken doing armor combat. I'm, I think most people who do armor combat get a finger broken every now and then. I have had some fingers broken. I, uh, oh, right, uh, okay. And, yeah. and you operated the next day? No, so that that was actually in my medical training, and it actually scared me enough that I, I it was all kind of around the same time. My hips started acting up and things, but um, I, I broke a couple fingers, and I, I had this realization moment of like, Oh God, you know, how is this, is this might not work well. (laughs) And it did kind of scare me away from the armored combat portion to where that's actually when I started getting into, um, Eido and, um, some of the Eastern martial arts, just because I said, all right, well, this is, you know, the way they train is largely kata. It's, it's, um, sort of drills and forms and things and not really like live sparring. And, um, so I tried that it was, it was fun, but eventually I realized, I really missed the armored combat and I, I sort of got to a point where I, I realized that it was more, I would much rather do the armored combat and, you know, modify some things if I had to, um, and be a surgeon and potentially risk injury than not, than not do it at all. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I do, I do have, uh, you know, something called own occupation disability insurance. So, you know, it's sort of, okay. yeah, you know, I, I, and, that's, and that covers armored combat. You know, I have not specifically asked that question. <laughs> so, so let me guess, let me guess if, if your hand gets irretrievably smashed by a pole axe, God forbid, <laughs> then it was a really unfortunate way to catch it in a car door. Wasn't it? Exactly. Right. But okay. don't record, you know, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That is, it is, it is scary. But you know, I've I've had the same sort of worries. You know, I could get a sword to the head, or you know, damage my right. spine, or break a leg, or something. And my job depends on my physical ability as much as yours does, I guess. I, I, I mean, I exactly. To... You know, even a computer programmer. I mean, at the same time, you right. still depend on your hands, right? Um, and you know, I suppose in a sense, I'm lucky. I don't have children or anything right now that I'm supporting through my income. Um, but for sure that can be a real, you know, a real concern for, for some people, um, you know, who are their kind of primary bedwinners for their family. But at the same time, you know, in the armored combat community, I mean, no one wants to get injured, you know, like no one's, no one's out there trying to beat, beat people up and everyone wants to come home at the end of the day. So I think it's about, um, kind of knowing the people you fight and their, their sort of philosophy and um, their level of intensity and, and moderating, you know, when you need to, to make sure everyone, you know, finishes the bout with 10 fingers intact. Yeah, absolutely. So what kind of gauntlets do you favor for this? So I, I do have pretty robust clamshell gauntlets. 
Um, I think those are for sure the, you know, the safest. The safest yeah. Sure. Do I, I, I don't the like dexterity? Because yeah, I like, I, I like, exactly. I have finger coordinates because honestly, if I, if I am a bit clumsy because I've got this badly broken finger or something and it's a sword fighting injury and I'm a sword fighting instructor, that's actually not going to harm my credibility at all. Um, right. Might enhance right. your credibility, you know, you battle right. Yeah, I, I have a scar on my head right here where um, I got my scouts put open by a longsword, which crushed the back of my fencing mask many moons ago. It was in the map. 1999 or 2000 something like that um, there's actually a photograph of the moment it happened which is on my blog which is great oh, but the thing is it's just a little split on the scalp right and it was like three staples dunk 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 job done mm-hmm. right but it was done by a sword so when I was in the hospital there was like 20 doctors came and had a look at the sword wound because I don't see them very often oh, I love was, that right exactly it was, uh, and it's just these these, these three staples or whatever but it's like you know i can show my students look this is why we train this way so you don't have this sort of thing right we learned the hard way back in the 90s uh, <laughs> um yeah so i use i use finger gauntlets um well i only use steel gauntlets i won't touch these horrible plastic things they are just inadequate mm-hmm. in every respect i think um but yeah if, if i was more worried if, if i was a professional trumpet player um then I would probably be using clamshells. Yeah, I, I do have different gauntlets. So like if I'm riding a horse, you know, you need control over the reins. So yeah. in that case, I, I have different gauntlets. But if I'm actually fighting on foot and it's, you know, a real a real bout or whatever, I, I unfortunately, yeah, I have to go with the safety first part. And it, it does kind of kill me, you know, when I can't quite manipulate things the way I want. And it's like, oh, that play would have worked so much better. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> if I had different gauntlets, but you know that's it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, and, and honestly, it's sort of also been my experience that once you kind of really get the mechanics deep into your bones, then you can accommodate things like you know gauntlets that don't work quite right or whatever, and you can still make stuff work because you know it doesn't require the sort of manual dexterity that a piano player has. It requires. It requires you to be able to express yourself through your weapon precisely, but it doesn't actually require that much manual dexterity. For sure. Yeah. And, it's, and you know, especially in armored combat, you know, we've, hmm. my group here in Boston, we've, we've gotten lucky that we have now maybe four fighters that can get together essentially on like a weekly basis and get an armor. And, you know, the interpretation of, of some plays for us has changed the more we've played around actually in armor of and course. i would 100 agree that yeah it's, it, at the end of the day it's it's about your body mechanics with the sword more than it's about the dexterity of your fingers you know yeah. i mean i i do the dexterity drills because they're useful but I, you shouldn't be relying on that sort of thing when you're actually trying to hit somebody also because under that level of stress if somebody's actually trying to take your head off with a sword chances are your level of arousal goes up to the point where you don't have any manual dexterity left anyway yeah, yeah, you're uh, maybe one step short of a monkey with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> right. A well-trained monkey with a stick. Exactly. Very well-trained. <laughs> uh, okay, so now you've mentioned horses a few times, and obviously the epitome of nightly combat is armoured combat on horseback, and it's just like the coolest thing ever. Um, so armour's expensive, horses are expensive, horses are not volunteers, 
they are conscripted into this. And so obviously we have to be very careful of our horses. Um, so do you have any advice for people who might be interested in getting into mounted combat um, who don't really know where to start? Yeah. So I'd say, you know, it starts sort of the same way that it does if you want to get into, um, you know, fencing and HEMA, but you don't have a HEMA group. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it starts by, on some level, do the thing that's closest to the thing you want to be doing. So yep. get your hands on horses, whether that's um, hanging out with, if you have some friend that has horses or horseback rides, just ask them if you can go watch, you know, ask them mm-hmm. if you can go help out. Um, most people will be more than happy to, you know, show you how to do some some work and help take care of the horse. Yeah, mucking out yeah. the stables. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, even that, you know, if you if people have the time, like most um, yards in the UK or, or horse stables in the US, um, most are happy to arrange some kind of like bartering system where you do some work, you know, around the stable and then they will trade you a lesson on a horse kind of thing. Um, so there's, there's definitely ways to get, to get involved. And I think that, you know, the, really the biggest barrier to mounted combat is just knowing how to ride and knowing how to be around horses safely. And that's, that's something that you don't have to go to an instructor that knows mounted combat to learn those things. Um, it's really more just about getting the access to, to horses and, really just having the time to, to spend to, to get comfortable. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, when people ask me the, that question, I just asked you, my first thing is just, just learn to ride. Because if, if you're a good rider, you can become a decent mounted combat person. But it doesn't matter how good you are with a sword. If you can't ride, you can't fight on horseback. Exactly. I, w- I would say, I mean, it's like, you know, who's going to win in a mounted combat uh, the better rider every fight? Time. Pretty much the better rider every time, unless you are very lucky. Well, okay. I've actually done um, sword, some mounted sword combat with um, Jennifer Landles in Vancouver. Yes. Just outside Vancouver. Do you know Jen? I I do, actually. She's uh, sort of actively uh, mentoring me right now uh, as I'm right. training well, my horse. Yeah. Well, you're in very good hands. Yeah, Jen's lovely. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've fought her. Um, and I would, I think it's probably fair to say that I am better with swords than she is. And on foot, I would have the advantage with a long sword against Jen. I think that's not unreasonable, right? It's a fair thing to say. On horseback, I, I, you know, I can ride a bit, I mean, reasonably well. I've, I've got to the point of being able to do flying changes on a decently trained horse. So, that's pretty say, good. Yeah, well, yeah. Through, through the beginner's course and onto some of the intermediate stuff as a rider. Yeah. Right? Um, and... The thing was, me on this horse, perfectly good horse, nothing wrong with the horse. We do not blame the horse. And Jen on her horse. And it was like, she kept getting behind me and just slicing me to pieces. And there's nothing I could do about it because I couldn't get the horse around fast enough. And it was, I just got absolutely slaughtered. It was brilliant. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so better, better rider every time. Yes. And, I, you know, I will say too, you know, if if people are looking at, you know, depending on where you live, if you have access to a bunch of different, you know, trainers or stables or whatever, um, you know, Jen is a proponent of this too, that, that really, um, if you have to pick a specific discipline, dressage is really kind of the heart of, 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 um, 
you know, what, what you, the sort of riding that you do in mounted combat, these quick turns, turns on a dime, you know, pirouettes and being able to shift the horse's uh, shoulders and hindquarters, you know, out of the way of a incoming blow and and that kind of thing. That's all dressage, you know, and and nowadays people look at that and they see, you know, modern horse dancing in the Olympics and they go, yeah. you know, this, this has nothing to do with, with fighting, but, um, it has everything to do with fighting. Exactly. Yeah. You go back far enough and it, we're all talking the same language about horses. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was got super lucky because, uh, in the early nineties, my girlfriend's mother owned a Grand Prix level dressage horse. And my girlfriend was a serious rider and th- between her mother and her, they taught me to ride on this Grand Prix level dressage horse. You were right. a very lucky man. I, it was just like, like just, just all I had to do was like get up at six in the morning three times a week, and I could go riding. It was, it was a, it was ridiculously, wow. ridiculously lucky, right? Yeah. Um, I, and yeah, so like on on that horse because we are. The horse sort of, once my seat was stable enough that I could give clear commands, the horse would do anything I asked it to do, mm-hmm. right? And the only limiting factor was, am I giving clear enough commands? Which meant that, you know, I could learn really quickly how to do that because every time I got it right, the horse did the right thing. And every time I right. got it wrong, the horse didn't know what to do. So just carried on cantering <laughs> or whatever it was doing. Like, make up your fucking mind and give me a clear order and I'll do what you want. But for God's sake, speak my language. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my um, uh, my horse is is six. He's uh, he's not quite there yet. <laughs> Some days it's well, I would really like you to do this thing, and he's like, mm, let's do something else, you know? Yeah, right. right. But we'll get yeah, there. And, we'll get there. And, yeah, and learning learning to ride in that context would be very very difficult. Yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah you you want to have uh, someone who really knows what they're doing, teaching you ideally, and mm. yeah, be on an experienced horse. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it, it reminds me. Um, that you know, sometimes when teaching historical martial arts, there are some things which you just the student just has to do the practice for long enough, and eventually that problem goes away. And I mm-hmm. learned that idea when I was being taught to ride because the two people who were teaching me to ride were both women, and I had this problem which most blokes have when learning to ride when doing a rising trot. Sometimes as your seat goes back onto the saddle, your nuts get crushed in between, which is not pleasant. And of course, you can't can't flinch and scream because it's bad for the horse, right? The horse will get confused or upset, right? And and so I said, look, this is happening. And they said, well, we don't know what to do. So we went and found a senior uh, instructor who was a bloke. And I mentioned the problem. And he said, you know what? After a while, you just stop doing it to yourself. I was like, well, thanks. That's not Great. very helpful. But he was right. After a while, I, I, and I couldn't say what the change was. Yeah. It stopped happening. Yeah. Something about your seat improved and shifted, and that was that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but but there wasn't a technical correction to make. You know, it wasn't like, okay, you know, you're sitting too far back or you're sitting too far, you're coming up too high in the rising troll. There wasn't a technical correction to make. It was just some yeah. very, very subtle detail. That's probably different for every bloke who rides. Uh, but eventually you just stop doing it to yourself and it's true. <laughs> yeah. And well, that's the thing. Yeah. That's the thing about one of those things about, about horses and horseback riding is that sometimes it just takes time and it's yeah. just patience. And, um, 
you know, it's not something that someone can show you. You have your, your body just has to figure it out for itself. Right. Um, and yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot of corollaries there. You know, one, one thing I've actually uh, found improving my fencing lately was actually something my, my dressage trainer told me and we were, we were working with my horse and she said, you know, you, you know, he's, he's trained to, you know, second, second level in us terms. And she said, you always ride him like he's a second level horse. She said, but if you ride him like he's a Grand Prix horse, if you get on there and you expect like a Grand Prix horse, he will give you more. Yeah. And I was like, that's interesting. And sure enough, you know, next time I rode, I, I sort of went out there like I was, you know, riding a, a horse with much more training. And sure enough, he gave right back to me a right. lot more, you know, and and the same thing happens in your fencing. It's like going yeah. to a tournament and telling yourself that you're a very average middling fencer. I mean, how do you think you're going to perform, right? Right. And it's, it's also true, like, the, the teacher effect on students. Um, I think it was Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, that has is where I came across these studies they did, where, you know, if you tell the teacher that these are sort of um, D-level students – the teacher will treat them like that and they'll behave like that. And if you tell the teacher that these are, you know, these students are expected to get A's, the teacher will treat them like that and they'll behave like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And obviously, you know, someone who was getting D's in maths doesn't suddenly start getting A's, but the, on average, the performance improved because the expectation of the teacher was that the performance would be higher and we are sort of naturally programmed to basically rise to the level of our teacher's expectations or sink to them. Oh yeah, yeah. When I wa- was an assistant Irish dance teacher, um, I uh, See, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can't just drop the sentence like when I was an assistant Irish dance teacher. Okay, so you were what is an assistant Irish dance te- dance teacher, and and how did that happen? And then carry on with what you were going to say. Sure. So yeah, I, I did competitive Irish dance for a long time. Okay. Um, and is in, that where you bubbled Ir- your hips? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> That Not plus surprising. armored combat at the same time is a really bad combination. Okay. Um, what was this? Oh, so yes, in the Irish dance world, um, in order to actually become a certified teacher, it's a very, very long, difficult process, high level of accreditation. So mm-hmm. I, I assisted teach. Like I did have classes where I was there as the primary teacher, but but I, I, on some level I was always an assistant. Um, yeah. Uh, so yes, in, in medical school, I kind of did this as a, you know, way to sort of supplement what I paid for dancing and things. And, um, I taught a lot of, uh, kind of elementary school through our like high school age girls, you know, maybe like mm, 10 to 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, when I started out, I was like, oh, I don't know how to teach like younger kids, you know, like it's just kind of intimidating to me. Like I can deal with adults. I can deal with older teenagers, you just treat them like adults. It's like, but what do I do with these younger kids? And, um, so I, you know, I showed up to like the first day of class and I thought, well, they're, you know, these are just girls. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to call them ladies. I'm just going to run the class. Like I would normally run it for my adults or my older teenagers. And so I I only ever called them ladies. I said, Hey, all right, ladies, this is what we're going to do. Blah, blah, blah. And you know what? They always, uh, seem to be very well behaved with that. Right. You know, when you, you know, by, by approaching it and, and using the word ladies and not girls or kids, it sort of pulled them up to a certain level, right? A certain level right. of expectation. Um, and 
I never really had to deal with drama. I never really had to deal with, um, I don't know, you know, teenage girl attitudes. It's like they just showed up and they behaved. I I have two teenage girls in the house, so (laughs) I know whereof you speak. Yes, yes. Uh, Yeah, so, you know, just in in that, again, in that mindset, yeah, I think it can be applied to to fencing, horses, swords, whatever. I mean, if you you embody that thing that you want to be and you, and you, um, sort of make that goal for yourself, you tend to rise up mm. to that level that you want to be where you're really going to run into trouble, you know, when it comes to like the, the fencing mindset and tournaments and things is if you show up and you have that sort of defeatist attitude that that is ultimately how you will perform for sure. Yeah. And you know, the, the right mindset doesn't guarantee victory, but it's very, very difficult to get victory without it. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned in an email to me um, when about something not, not to do with the podcast that you don't always agree with my Fiore interpretations. Now, I take this extremely seriously, and I'm, um, <laughs> we have to have a fight about this now. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Um, seriously, I'm curious. Can you give me a specific example? Because I'm – firstly, it's quite possible that I'm wrong, and I can then fix my interpretation, or – I have presented my interpretation in a way that has miscommunicated it to you so that I need to fix that. There's going to be something I need to fix. And that's always a useful thing, place to be. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start off by saying that, you know, the internet is forever, guys. So, you know, there are things that, for instance, you wrote, you know, years ago that then I've seen you've like updated later on your blog okay. and gotten back around to the same topic and said like, oh, well, now I you know, think slightly differently, whatever. Um, But, uh, you know, I'd say like the biggest one is, I guess, like sort of your interpretation of like Stretto and what that means. Um, Yeah. And I, and I know you've like written some pretty lengthy posts about it. And, uh, you know, like when I first uh, learned sort of my interpretations of Fiore, you know, Stretto was very simply put to me as like, it's, it's the the closer distance, right? It's the distance right. where you it's, can it's, reach out. It's a, it's a description of measure. In, in, right. the, it's a description in the interpretation of you're talking about, it's a description of measure. Whereas in my interpretation, it's a, a description of the tactical situation of which measure is just one component. Yes. I, I guess, you know, the, the thing that like confuses me about that definition, mm-hmm. like if you say Stretto is the situation in which Stretto plays can be performed. I mean, doesn't that become a kind of circular uh, logic? Uh, no, because uh, okay. Do you want me to start like explaining it as I as I see it? Yes, I think you have to okay. now. All right, all right, fine. Okay, so in Italian, um, stretto is the past participle of the verb stringere, which means to constrain. To uh, like, if you shake hands with someone, you stringi il mano. Um, if you're parking a car and your Italian passenger thinks you should get closer to the curb, they might say stringy, stringy, as in sort of, you know, squeeze the distance. If, if a street is narrow, it's stretta, right? So it's constraint. Um, close, as in two things that are close to each other, is vicino, right? So there is a word for being physically close that is not stretto. This is not the word that's being used. So, um, and if we look in Fiore's illustrations, we can see that there are actions that are done 
um, at very close quarters that are in the Largo section. Mm-hmm. So La- Strato sort of doesn't really exist without the concept of Largo. They're, they're two halves of the same coin. And Largo, okay. again, doesn't mean far away. It means wide or broad or loose. Okay? So you can be in the same physical proximity to your opponent and be free to strike because maybe you're, you've stamped on their sword, as in the breaking of the thrust plate, or you are in, in some other way controlling their sword, like you've maybe grabbed the, the blade of it, as you see in, again, another one of the Largo plays. And so you are free to strike. Yeah? However, if the blades are crossed... And there's sufficient pressure there that if you leave the bind to strike, you're going to get hit immediately. Then you are constrained. Your actions are literally constrained. Your sword is physically constrained and your actions are tactically constrained. And you have to, as Fury would say, pass with the cover and come to the close place. Right? So the reason I don't agree with the... I mean, we were talking about Largo and Strato being you know, far away and physically close um, in the 90s, right? It, it dates back that far. And it, I, I kept that interpretation until about 2008. Um, but then the other real, I mean, it's less critical with the armoured plays, but in the unarmoured plays, which is where the distinction is actually made, the issue is, if you have this concept of Largo and Strato as a condition of play, which is primarily about the crossing of the sword, which is done at about the same measure whether you're Largo or Strato, it actually gives you a an indication of when, in what tactical circumstance, you should do plays as we find in the Largo section or plays as we find in the Strato section. And so when I came up with this interpretation and I fed it to my students, the quality of their free play immediately improved. Mm-hmm. Right, they were because using the strato right. plays at the right time. Another thing is in the largo section, which is explicitly not the strato plays. It's not it's the largo plays. Um, we see actions which are done at very close quarters. Right. Yeah. So the fact that you are at very close quarters does not necessarily mean you are strato, because there are plays in the strato section, sorry, in the Largo section, where you are, like, physically in contact with your opponent. Right. And I suppose that's true even of, like, a if you have a dagger or a bastoncello, you know, it, it, uh, you're yeah, physically think, think about, close, but there's still kind of things that are Largo and things that are strato even within that. Although with the dagger, because the dagger is so small and fast and dangerous, basically you have to be controlling your opponent's dagger all the time. And therefore, yes. pretty much all the dagger players are basically strata. The, the concept yeah, once, is once you've is close strato. close enough to actually right. hit someone, then you're in strato. Yeah, uh, but then okay, if we're if we're doing swords and we are sufficiently close, let's say you've thrust it at me, I break your thrust to the ground and I step on it, right? So I'm stepping on your sword and I'm free to like carve you into salami in the approved Italian manner. That's a largo play, even though we are really really physically close to each other. Right? I buy that. So, yeah. So, <clears throat> the from the perspective of what we see in the manuscript, I'm specifically thinking of the Getty manuscript, but this is true for the others as well. Um, the specific use of language um, 
I, I just can't buy the idea that strato is just this description of measure. Mm-hmm. Just purely. Right? De- it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fit what I see in the manuscript. Right. And in addition, when I came up with this revised interpretation, people who saw it found that their free play got better mm-hmm. because they now had a set of tools for knowing when to do what plays that's actually clear and explicit. And it basically boils down to how the swords have crossed. Yeah. So let's say if you, if you throw your, you know, attack me with your sword, as you probably should, it'd be good for me. Right. And I, and I parry. And as Fiori says, I beat it aside and it actually, I successfully beat it aside, which is unusual, but does happen. Right. And I can simply strike over your arms and thrust you in the chest, as in the first and second plays of the um, second martial of the Zogolaru, crosses at the middle of the swords. Mm-hmm. Um, for that to be a safe play, your sword must have been beaten aside. Right. Yeah. So it's either far away from me or it is moving away from me. Right. But, but if the swords come together, so my parry is successful and I don't get hit, but you have perhaps turned into the parry or whatever and we're bound at the sword. So the point of contact is the same as it was, but the effect is different. If I do that same stepping out of the way to strike play, your sword will just hit me in the face. Right. Yeah. I agree. So, so it's not measure. I, don't, I, I can't, I know that most of my colleagues still stick to this ancient interpretation, which I mm-hmm. cast away 14 years ago. Right. Um, and the thing is, the advantage of the old Largo strata distinction, Largo means far away, wide measure, right? Wide measure, misura larga. There is such a thing as misura larga, right? Which is wide measure and misura mm-hmm. strata, which is constrained measure. And Capoferro uses those terms, for instance, right? But Fiori doesn't. It's jogo larga or zogo larga, zogo strata, which is constrained play or wide play. And the term measure does exist in Italian at this point. So he could have used it if he wanted to. Yeah. And I think if it was about measure, I think he would probably have said so somewhere. Or use a different word. Yeah. Right. So no, I, I I think that's I think that's good. That 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 makes a little bit more sense to me the way you, you explain it. And um you know, I think some of it at the end of the day comes down to, you know, personally, I don't speak Italian. I wish that I did. It's on my list. <laughs> You know, but there, um, there's there's a lot of situations, right, where we use one English word to interpret what is a more complicated concept than right. we have a single word for. And, and we also do that in reverse, where it's a perfectly simple word in Italian, and people come up with these ridiculously long, complicated explanations as to how this, that, and the other, blah, blah, blah. And actually, no, it's just a very simple thing, and it has no particular connotations. It just means this. Um, Can you give me an example? Um, Putting you on the spot. <laughs> okay. Um, there's there's all sorts of who the term volta, right? Oh yeah. It means turn, right? Mm-hmm. Voltare right, to turn, right? Okay. English speakers don't like that because tornare. Sounds like turn, but actually means return. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does not mean to like turn around and on the spot. It means 
having gone away, you now come back, right? Yeah. But it's closer, you know, it, it's a false friend and it, it, it sounds like turn, so it's tornari, right? So um, in Fiori's description of footwork, we have like passare, tornare, to pass and to return, right? And accurasere and discrasere, uh, which is to step forward and to step back, but literally to increase and decrease. Right. Okay. And then there's the three turns, volta stabile, mezza volta, and tuda volta, right? Yeah. Which are the heart, the um, volta stabile is the stable turn, whereas Fury says both feet um, are fixed, and you can play in front or behind on the same side. He's that specific. It's awesome. And then you've got the mezza volta, which is the half turn where he says, with a pass forwards or backwards, you can play on the other side. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the tuda volta, the whole turn, so it's like stable, half, and whole, um, where you can, um, it says with one foot fixed, the other one turns around it. Yeah? Yeah. So it just means turn. It's not fancy and special. Um, but then this is, the, this is where it gets really tricky. Fury says, and thus I say, there are three turns of the sword, Volta-Stavli, Mesa-Volta, and Tudor-Volta, but he never uses the terminology in the sword sections at all, and he never describes them further. Right. And they're obviously not footwork actions. They are, because those have been described, they are sword actions. Mm-hmm. Right. And because there's this mystery in the text for which, in my opinion, there is not sufficient internal evidence to make any kind of um, serious interpretation. Because this is a matter of the sword. When with both feet fixed, I can play on the same side in front and behind. What does that even mean? Right? With a sword, with the, with the feet, it's easy, right? You know, you've right. you got the weight on the front foot and you, you can play on the front. And if you make a turn without actually shifting a foot on the ground, you can play on that same one side in front and behind. And if you want to play on the other side, you do a passing action forwards or backwards and you can play on the other side. It, it's straightforward. Okay? Um, but you get like pages and pages of internet wank about the vultures of the sword. Right, trying to come up with you know, well, and you know, references to Vitruvian Man, and which is like 150, <laughs> 200 years later. Um, no, that's not true, it's about 100 years later. Um, and you know, all sorts of like, let's try and make this puzzle work and fit, and then that is, and coming up with like special use cases, right? Yeah, yeah, and and translating it into into English in all sorts of funny ways. Like another classic is stringery with the rapier, right? Where you, um, your opponent's on guard, the sword is pointed towards you. And when you string it, you constrain their sword by basically getting your sword in the way of it so that the strong of your blade is opposing the weak of theirs. It may not be touching, but it's, it's in the way of, right? So they can't hit you directly. They have to make some prior action before they can hit you. Maybe disengage or moving their swords so that the strong of their swords against the weak of yours before they can strike, right? Mm-hmm. And it means to constrain, right? And there are other things you could say there, but it's not a bind. It's not a transport. It's not because it, it is often done without physical contact, right? Um, so constraint is like the obvious one word thing, right? I had this great long conversation with someone who was desperate for me to use the term astringe. 
Fuck is a string. Well, you know, a str- you know, astringent. If some, if if a, it's like if that's a what chemical, you put on your face, right? Right. If, yeah. If a chemical is astringent, it makes things kind of yeah. contract. I think. Yeah. I'm not a chemist, and I'm not a biologist, and I'm not a doctor, but you know, right? Yeah. And but it's like it's it's a it's a cognate, right? It's, it's it comes from the same root, obviously. Stringere, astringe, and astringent. Right, but just because it's cl- closely related in language does not mean it's closely related in meaning anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so there's one friend of mine think- put it to me that yeah, if if you, it's no, I'm, actually I'm not going to go there because that goes into politically very incorrect mm-hmm. territory. So mm-hmm. I'm going to just 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 pull myself back from that little precipice before I piss off a whole lot of people. I, I was going to say the, the uh, only problem I had in all of that lovely explanation was the part where you mentioned listening to the gobbledygook on the internet. <laughs> right. Well, because because so much of it is, is shit, as, as so much of the stuff that I was saying 20 years ago turned out to be shit, right? I mean, it was, it was honest shit. I wasn't making stuff up for my own amusement. It was state of the art at the time, but it turns yeah. out to be wrong. I mean, you know... Surgery has we, yeah, changed quite a, quite a bit in the last hundred years. It hasn't. Yeah, no. I <laughs> in terms of Western martial arts, we've come a long way since I was right. a, a teenager. Yeah, looking at right. this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and and the thing is, like, when when people come to historical martial arts and they realize there's all this research stuff and they get totally into it, and it's great that they do that. It is to be expected that their early work is perhaps not as good as it might one day become. Yeah. Right? I would expect someone who's producing their first translation of a medieval Italian text or a 17th century German text or whatever else, I would expect their first version to be not very good because translation is a seriously hard skill. Right? It is It is so woefully difficult that I've done it twice and I don't really want to ever do it again. Right. Yeah, it's it's uh, something that I I think I would never be, right. never get to the point of being able to do for sure. Right, but then but then, you know, you get translations done by people who really know what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, and then somebody comes along who has no background in the language, no background in translation, no background in working with these sorts of sources at all. Right, which is a great place to start. Obviously, everyone mm-hmm. starts there. Right, and produces their own translation, and they get into arguments with the previous, with the more experienced, more qualified translators because they really, really want this particular word to mean this particular thing because then this super cool thing comes out. Right, right. Like you know, I'm actually remembering a discussion on Sword Forum back must be seventeen, eighteen years ago now, where someone was desperate for tornare to mean to turn around rather than to return. And it just bloody doesn't. Right? It just doesn't. Um, and, and the thing is, you don't want to, you don't want to discourage these people from doing this kind of work because that's how they're going to get really good at it. They have right. to produce and we need the less good it. stuff. Right. Yeah. They have to produce the less good stuff so they can learn how to do it better. Right? Um, but then... 
You have two books in front of you, and you know nothing about this art at all. They're both translations of the same source. And one of them is accurate and has been thoroughly vetted by people who know what they're doing. And the other one is somebody's early work, right? But to the reader, who has no, no knowledge or context of the field, they're the same. Yes. Right? And they will pick the one they like the best. Yes. Right? And go off on all sorts of horrible, wrong tangents and down wrong rabbit holes and stuff because they were misled. And, okay, there isn't a solution to this, but when I say, like, shit on the internet, I mean, um, like, 99.9% of everything I've ever seen on any kind of internet forum or any, including things like YouTube or Facebook or whatever else, almost all of it is rubbish. Like, really, really bad. Okay? There are absolute gems out there. There are totally are some fantastic things. But the noise-to-signal ratio is so bad that I just have abandoned Facebook altogether. I've abandoned YouTube. I mean, I literally pay somebody to make sure my Facebook page gets stuff put on it so that people will come off Facebook and onto my website and find my stuff and that kind of thing. I don't do even, I don't even go there myself. Right. Um, and you know, I have a discord channel. Actually, all my podcast guests get invited onto my discord channel. So there will oh, be a link. special club. Yeah, absolutely. This, um, but also it's for, it's for people who are, um, you know, my students and, you know, my friends and, and also, my guests and various other people um, because it cuts out all the noise. Yeah. 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 Um, we're, no, it, I, I agree. Yeah. I think good conversation with your club members or the club down the road from you, you know, one country over, whatever, one state over, yeah. that's always going to be much higher quality than, than, than everything that else that's out there on, on, the majority of the internet, you know. And, and the problem is there's no way to tell the good from the bad unless you already know the good and therefore you don't need it. Uh, yeah, right? exactly. That's the problem. You have to be an expert in the field before you can spot the good from the bad. Yeah, that uh, I, I agree. I mean, well, it's the same thing as uh, looking up why you have a headache before you go to the doctor, right? It's, <laughs> it's never going to be yeah. good information that you find. No, no, absolutely not. And um, it, yeah, it, it's one of those domains where everyone's an expert and until actually, you know, things go really badly wrong and then, then they find, yeah. oh, actually, hang on. Although, you know, I, I will say, you know, the, the Facebook groups out there and, and things, I think I've done a lot to, um, you know, to, to increase the visibility of, of events and get people yeah. from you know, far away places coming to things that they might not otherwise. I mean, mm. you know, my, my trip to the UK um, probably, you know, this past year wouldn't have happened except that I was prowling facebook one day and saw oh armored combat workshop you know i want to do that and oh, maybe right, i cool. could go out there and and you know i think if i if i hadn't been willing to spend some time investing in those communities you know i i wouldn't have had that experience so sure yeah I, again i'm not suggesting that other people should use social media it's just it it doesn't yeah. work for me for sword stuff i use it for other things yeah um, for high level discussion about about 
yeah, manuscripts and things. I think there's better, better form. Yeah, and also the problem often comes down to a popularity contest, right? Yeah. So let's say you have one researcher who is highly qualified and expert, whatever, and they still may be wrong, but there's good reason to believe they're probably right. And you have someone else who is plausible and nice and popular. The plausible, nice, popular person is going to be believed more than the expert who maybe has a somewhat unfortunate manner, for instance, mm-hmm. right? Um, which, funny enough, um, a friend of mine um, had an unfortunate incident whilst in the States and ended up in hospital for quite a long time and had a bunch of abdominal surgery. And when he described his surgeon, I was like, that's who I want operating on me. Because he was this person who was it's almost like a, you know, you know the, sort of the archetype of the, the autistic savant, someone who is mm-hmm. superbly good at one thing, but doesn't really do anything else and doesn't, has no real social skills. He's like, he was always looking at the floor, was always just like, sort of awkward mannered, but was an absolutely brilliant abdominal surgeon because that's the stuff he was interested in. Yeah, that's who right. you want. For- <laughs> that's, who you, that's who you want operating on you, yeah. I, I don't care if they're a nice person. For all I, you know, they can be drowning puppies for fun at the weekend, for all I care, right? But if they're the best surgeon for what I've got wrong, that's who I want. Maybe. I don't know. I'll draw the line somewhere because you still <laughs> have to go back and see that person later, but... Ah, yeah, true, but you're alive to do so. Yeah, yeah. Ideally, I'd like someone both, right? Like, not a sure. psychopath and also a surgeon. <laughs> although, although um, a cousin of mine in Australia is uh, has a long-term relationship with this trauma surgeon who is obviously a psychopath, right? Um, because when... She does TV work and she was doing this TV program where they were kind of following medical stuff around, right? And he was called in from some dinner or something because he was on call. And so he came in wearing his tuxedo or whatever, classic kind of sort of stuff you'd see in Grey's Anatomy or whatever, mm-hmm. right? And this um, car crash victim was brought in who had their chest had been basically crushed and it was stopping their heart from beating. So he, so as he was walking, he just rolled up his sleeve, said, big knife, a nurse handed him a big knife, and just, just cut the bloke open, shoved his hand in, popped the sternum up, heart started beating again. And then they worried about things like disinfection and scrubbing in and doing the surgery properly. But you know, you, you can't do surgery on a dead person. So he just, and, but his affect, was like, this to him was just completely no big deal. Like, that's not normal. Like, normal people can't detach like that. I'll just be totally unmoved by like somebody bleeding everywhere with their chest crushed in and they just. I mean, I haven't shown up in my arming doublet yet, but who knows? Maybe one day it could happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's a useful trait. It's a socially useful trait. We need people yeah. like that in those sorts of situations so they're not 
they're able to act dispassionately and quickly because they're just not connected to the emotional stuff that's going on around. Yeah. Right? Oh, and then, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balance. I think, uh, you know, as the more time you spend focusing on surgery, it's very easy to become detached. Right. Um, you know, both, you know, things that used to bother me don't now. And in a way that's good, right. I can focus on whatever is going on and it's not gory yeah. whatever. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to lose that, that part of you that's human, you know? And right. If, if your patient just is like a Barbie doll that you're just playing yeah, with. Yeah. That's not good either. Too, that's yeah, exactly. It goes too far. And, you know, um, for me, that's, that's on some level why I do all this and the horses and everything else is it it adds back that that human aspect yeah. that art to life you know that otherwise it would just be sterile yeah I mean, it's a pretty stressful job i imagine it can be yeah there's definitely days when i come home and i'm supposed to go you know to teach sword stuff or whatever and it's kind of hard to flip your brain but um Again, that's why we need hobbies and why we need to spend time with people that aren't doctors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and who, who aren't sort of, you know, rushing around doing what you tell them. Instead, they're just trying to bash you on the head with a big stick. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's good for you. It's very good for <laughs> Yeah. Um, excellent. Okay. Um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? I have a few. I mean, one is okay. I would really like to learn Italian and get to the point where like, you know, I could, I'm not keen on like translating things myself, really. I just know that that's not my forte. I struggled with like language <laughs> in school. Yeah. I leave that to other people, but, but at least get to the point where, you know, some of it comes across in a way that's more meaningful. Um, the, re the real answer to that question, though, is, is you know, so my, my ultimate goal in life is uh, I'd really like to, again, I don't really see myself like running my own sword school, maybe like with someone else, but I'd really like to, to you know, build my own center in the United States where, you know, you could have more mounted combat and, you know, so in a, a kind of an equestrian center with horseback riding and maybe dressage or whatever, and then have space for, you know, a nice hall to have uh hema classes in and you know create kind of a center where people can come and gather um and get you know groups together clinics things like that because there's so many hema groups out there that like don't have their own space you know yeah. and that they practice in some you know wrestling place or uh martial arts school and it, it really does limit the interactions you can have you know yeah very much so. um yeah and uh so for me, it's like if I could create one place like that for people to come to, you know, um, I think that that would be would be meaningful and it would just be totally fun. And, you know, I I'm realistic about the fact that I will probably never quit my day job. But well, why uh, would you? I mean, right. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's rewarding and it makes good money. Um, but I sure as heck would like to do everything else I can to, you know get more involved and uh again you know start to teach my own interpretations of things and and uh yeah facilitate more community okay so so you would you'd like to build your own training center which would definitely include stables yes for sure okay. and like so so uh, basically basically you're you're modeling gen yeah 
Yeah, because you know, she, she has behind, recently, but, uh, yeah, she, she might, she's yeah, recently I, done I might. just exactly that. She went and bought a farm in the outside Vancouver and, and, you know, has horses and, you know, it's, it's this training center where you can go and do up, you know, mounted combat classes. And yes, I, I talk to her about once a week and she's giving me very bad ideas. Or very good <laughs> ideas. I think they're very good ideas. You just have to act on them. Exactly. Um, it, it sounds to me like you would need to set it up as a business and have somebody to run it. Yeah. So you'd be the owner and an instructor, but not the manager or the instructor. Yeah. I'll take applications. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, I have no interest in working for anybody else. <laughs> no, I, 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 after I'm 20, listeners. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, fine. But you know, I've, been, I've been working for myself for 22 years and I think I am unemployable at this stage because the notion of having to, you know, run anything by someone before I'm allowed to do it is just. Right. You know, I hear no. you. I mean, as a doctor, I'm kind of in that category too. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, okay. Uh, so I imagine like my next question, somebody gives you a million dollars or so to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. Is that how you would spend that money? Or does the no. worldwide thing? Because that, be, that would be selfish, right? Like the, okay. the horse HEMA center on some level is like for me, you know, and okay, my community. Um what I would, what I think I would rather do with that million dollars is I sort of imagine like, so, okay. So like during my surgical training, right. Um, you know, I've applied for various like fellowships and things, and there's these things called traveling fellowships where you apply, you get sort of a set amount of like a few thousand dollars and you can go watch surgeons all over the world operate. And cool. the idea is you're supposed to go, you like learn your techniques and then you take them back home to where you practice and you know yeah. then your community is better for it and i sort of imagine doing something similar for hema so you know some this sort of program nonprofit, or whatever you could apply to and you know i want to go um you know watch guy teach sword classes for a month or whatever and you would go and like get whatever personal instruction kind of learn from them and then bring it back to your home little HEMA school yeah. and, you know, maybe have like a permanent relationship there. That's a great idea. I mean, and that's my school operated that sort of thing indirectly for quite a while. Um, Cause you yeah. know, we have a, a facility and students could stay there. So as long as they could find a way of getting to the country, they had a place to stay with a kitchen and a bathroom and a washing machine and a place to sleep and whatnot. Um, yeah, so, so I, have, I sort have. of imagine like formalizing, right? So it's yeah, like yeah. you got this grant to go do it and it would be, you know, pay for your plane flight or whatever. And that's um, a good idea. You know, make it like credible or whatever. I don't know what the right word is, but that's my yeah, idea. Yeah, it, it it's tricky to, whenever we're talking about chunks of money and money being given to people to do stuff with, it's always, you always have to have these hoops and checks and balances and, yeah. yeah it, so I sort of like imagine it being run by like a nonprofit you'd set up that's like, yeah. you know, the HEMA nonprofit. And then obviously they take applications and pick the person. And then that person would be responsible maybe for writing some sort of, you know, written thing about their experience or having to present about their experience at some HEMA event or something to, 
kind of make it more formal, but um, at the same time, it's like, I feel like it should be a grant. They should never have to repay the money. Oh, yeah, Because no, that's absolutely. the whole point, right? It's like yeah, they get yeah. to do something they couldn't otherwise do. And, and I, you know, a lot of the people who would be applying for that sort of thing are probably short of money because they happen to live in a place where the money isn't worth very much. So right. like, and, you know, yeah. $1,000 to the average American is one thing. $1,000 to the average, I don't know, Chilean perhaps, or, or you know, pick a country, um, is a lot harder to come by. Yeah. So, and it's, yeah. so it's also if, much harder to get, you know, someone like you to go out for an extended period of time to whatever place, but they could send their coach, their instructor, whatever to you. And mm. then it would. As, as know. many have done. It, yeah. Um, but then they, they've had to sort of find ways of getting the money together. Actually, I have been trying to figure out how to, how to, make it so that I can go and teach in places that can't afford me. Mm -hmm. um, like my current idea is I have this sort of monthly subscription to my online courses, um, which is a chunk of my income, but it's not all of my income. And assign maybe a month of that because it's a monthly subscription. So it makes sense to sort of take like a month of that. That should bring in enough money in a decent, in a good month to fund, you know, flights and whatever for me to go somewhere where I can teach for free for a week or so and probably have money left over to make some kind of contribution to the local community, some local charity or something. That, so the, the school there can start making connections with other, you know, yeah. make, making better connections within their own community. And then, you know, then I fly home again, having leaving a bunch of happy sword people behind who haven't been bankrupted by the experience. But I think that's great. I think that's ideal. It's a good, it's a good idea. You just have to um, have the time too. Well, yeah. uh, uh, the time isn't really the problem. It's it's figuring out how to administer it so that it's transparent where the money's come from, how much it is. It's transparent how people get access to it. And it's a fair process so that it doesn't just go to people who I already know and like. It goes yeah. to people who, who have who may have no you know no previous connection. It's just, okay, we are this club in this place and this is what we would do with it. And whatever committee decides these things goes, that's the best idea. Okay, guy, you're going to such and such a place. And then, of course, we just set up the the time and the flights and the problem. Yeah, you need you need a third party that's like a committee that reviews it. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I have a couple of friends who volunteer for it, but also it's a question of how to publicize it, right? How to make it clear to people that they are able to apply for this sort of thing and what their obligations would be, mm -hmm. right? Because, um, you know, I was thinking that, it shouldn't be free for the locals because people don't value what they don't pay for, but it should be appropriately priced for the location. So like the equivalent of going out for beers with your mates, that kind of money for the weekend. Right. And, you know, in some places that's $3 and other places that's $50. But so, so, but price it according to something local so that it's, yeah. so that 
it's, I think that's so a good it's, idea. It's a re- so it's a reasonable expectation. Um, and, you know, depending on where you go, it may end up being no proportion of the pot, but all of that money would stay local. It would be, like, distributed to local charities mm-hmm. or whatever. Maybe I mean? need, we need to combine. We need to combine forces. Maybe it's maybe it's an organization that does both right sends you places and then people. Yeah, perhaps it, you know. Because because I mean the like the biggest problem in front of us really is that swords are expensive and always have been, and yeah. you know, generally speaking, my time is expensive because you know I've been doing this a long time and I know what I'm doing, um, and it's it's. It, it, but it, it shouldn't be you have to be rich to do it it should be you have to be really keen to do it yeah I agree yeah I mean I feel very lucky as a you know as a surgeon I I make enough money that I am able to take trips that probably a lot of other people aren't and um, yeah it's something I would like to share with other people you know so they have that opportunity okay so we should set something up <laughs> <laughs> well actually yeah, you said you're coming to the UK. We should probably chat about it when you're actually here. Probably not on the we podcast. Should. Yeah, okay. let's Brilliant. do it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Steve, for joining me today. It's been lovely to meet you. This was great. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Elizabeth. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. And thanks to Andrew Lawrence King, as always, for the Baroque Harp accents, originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defence audiobook project. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Kin Chan, who is a landscape designer, cosplayer and historical martial arts practitioner. So if you want to know what is the Wan Pans and what may be Kingulus, you're just going to have to tune in next week and find out. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have a minute, do leave it a review. It really does help. And of course, as always, please do share this with your friends. Thanks for listening. And I will see you next week.